0: Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. And under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved." This is the word of the Lord. Most of you know that Marsh and I love to sail. But a number of years ago, we decided that we would go on a cruise. Get on a big ship. Let somebody else do the driving for a change. And so we worked at finding a cruise that we wanted to go on. And we went with another couple, Buddy and Susie Anderson. They were good friends of ours. We were living back in Houston then. And we found an itinerary that we thought we would like. It was going to sail on a Saturday out of Miami, go to the Bahamas to a private island owned by the company, and from there to Jamaica, and from Jamaica to Grand Cayman, and Grand Cayman to Cozumel, and then finally back home to Miami on the next Saturday. Be a seven-day cruise. Well, we were very excited about it, and so we flew to Miami and got on the ship, and it set sail, and before we knew it, we were in the Bahamas at that private island, sitting on the beach at a picnic table, the four of us, and just enjoying life. And while we were sitting there, a a lady came up and she said, Can I join you? I said, Absolutely. She sat down and I, I said, So are you having a good time? And she said, Well, it's getting better now. It was a little stressful to begin. Oh, she told us her story. She had been trying to get ready to take a whole week off, and so she had been working very hard, working late every single night, and she had been working so hard she really hadn't had time to pack. And so she got up very early on that Saturday morning and she started packing to try to get ready for the trip, and as you know, packing always takes longer than you think it's going to, and so she now was running really late and she finally just threw everything in, closed the suitcase up, and headed for the airport. By the time she got to the airport, she was running really late and as she checked in, they said, we're afraid that we cannot get this piece of luggage on your plane flying to Miami. However, we do have another flight following this one and we'll put your luggage on that one and so it should get to you before your ship sets sail. She literally ran down the terminal and she said she got there as they were closing the door and she got on the plane and sat down. She was very much relieved, knowing that her luggage would be there coming soon. And she then flew on to Miami, and when she got there, she, she got the bad news that the plane that was following, well, it had mechanical trouble. And so it had not been able to fly out, and so her luggage was not going to arrive before the ship set sail, and she would not have any clothes. Only what she had on her back would she have for the trip. So she got on the ship not feeling very good about all of that when they started spreading the word. The the crew did. They had a person on board who wasn't able to get their luggage. And people were so compassionate, they all started coming and giving her all this new clothing. And she said, look at this. i got a brand new bathing suit and a cover-up. And I've been giving tops and dresses. And she said, I've got a whole new wardrobe. I'm going to be getting to wear all new clothes on this trip and I'm really feeling great about it. I said, wow, that's, that's amazing and what a great spirit. So we traveled on. They said that her luggage now would arrive probably in Grand Cayman halfway through the trip. And so Wednesday was we we're going to arrive in Grand Cayman. We got there and if you've ever sailed into Grand Cayman, you know that there wasn't a deep water port. So they anchor out and then you get on a tender a small boat, and you go into town drop you off at the dock. And so that's what they were doing, and they said, we're going to have tenders running every 30 minutes back and forwards, but at the end of the day, at 4 o'clock, it's the last tender coming back to the ship. Make sure you've been on it. You need to be back to the ship on that last tender, or we will sail without you. So we headed into town, the four of us, to go play for a while. And I didn't want to chance it, so we caught the 3.30 tender to make sure we got back on board on time. And we were there having some fun back on the ship. Four o'clock came. Boy, they blew the horn. They wound up hoisting up the anchor, and we were on our way. And as we were on our way, then they came on the speaker system, and they said, We told you to be back by four o'clock. We had one of our passengers who did not make it back. And so they have been left behind in Grand Cayman. We do have another ship coming that will pick them up and they will rendezvous with us in Cozumel. Okay. Then we got to talking to crew and we found out the person who had missed the tender was the lady that we had had lunch with on that very first day. So the good news was her bag was now on our ship. the bad news was she was on another ship now. (laughs) We found out that she had a bathing suit and a cover up and that night was the captain's fancy dinner. Which could have been bad except the crew spread the word and she was now given a lovely new dinner gown and shoes and jewelry and a whole new wardrobe and the captain felt really so sorry for her he invited her to sit at his table. So that night, she got to sit at the captain's table. It was an elegant, lovely evening, and she had such a great time. Well, on Friday, we finally arrived in Cozumel. And then that Friday, the other ship arrived. And finally, the lady was back on the ship with her bag as we set sail on the last day of the cruise home to Miami. But that night, we went to the lounge for a show. And as you know, you do after dinner. And we went in a big crowd of people. And she was so gracious, she let the crew tell her story. And so she was there as they were telling everybody about what had happened to this lady, what had gone down. And after they came to the end, they said, what we really thought we wanted to share with you tonight, though, was what she does for a living. She is an author and a lecturer on stress and time management. LAUGHTER we laughed so hard we were crying that she was standing there and we, we just laughed and laughed and she just stood there. Finally, when it calmed down, she said, I just got to tell you how wonderful it was that I lost my luggage. I've had a whole new wardrobe this entire trip. I've been on two ships instead of one. I got to sit at the captain's table. This has been a trip full of joy. I have never forgotten it because I was reminded that sometimes we make foolish mistakes and sometimes it's other mistakes and bad things that happened to us we didn't deserve. But whatever the circumstance, if we are walking with Christ, we can find joy. This morning, I want to continue on with this sermon series, Finding Joy. Because that's what we're trying to look at right now, how in the world there's so much going on around us and it is so easy to get pulled down, discouraged, frustrated, angry, and yet we believe if we are walking with Christ, regardless of what all is happening out here, we can find joy in here. It's why I chose our scripture lesson this morning because it's a great story that you find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three Gospels, and it's about how the disciples of John come to Jesus and say, we as good Jews have been taught to fast. We know that the Pharisees will fast, but you and your disciples do not fast. Why is that? And Jesus said, If the bridegroom is with you, how can you fast? Right now everyone knows just so much joy. One day the bridegroom will be taken away. One day they will fast, but not now. Because the presence of Christ was with them, you're just going to know joy. He said it's like if you have old wineskins and you put new wine into the old wineskins well, they're going to be destroyed. That's because if you take new wine, poured in old wineskins, old wineskins are no longer pliable, flexible. If you're pouring in new wine, it's going to be fermenting. It's going to be creating its gases. And if the wineskins are no longer pliable, well, then it's going to burst and you will lose the wine. Now, if you have new wine, he said, you need new wineskins because new wineskins, they they give, they can take a new shape, they are pliable. And as the wine is given and it begins to ferment it is being created into something beautiful and the wineskins will be able to change and adapt into something new. And clearly Jesus was saying you and I are the wineskins and He is that new wine. And that when you are filled with that gift of a new wine, when you get to have a taste of new wine, then it will do something to you if you are pliable, if you're able to change. But if you are rigid, then you will lose that spirit of Christ. Now what's fascinating is this story, as I said, is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the analogy is always the same and the meaning is the same, but each author has a different point of emphasis they want to make. and It's kind of fun to see how they use it. For instance, in Luke, the last line after talking about new wineskins, old wineskins, those sort of things, he said, And whoever has tasted the old does not want the new. They say the old is good. It's the old temptation. I like the way things used to be. I like the old. I don't want new. I want the old. I don't want something that's going to make me change or grow i like the way it used to be whoever has tasted the old does not want the new they say the old is good they're talking about the law and the traditions and the way we have always done it if you go to mark mark ends the story by saying new wine is for fresh skins For Mark, the emphasis is on God is pouring out His Holy Spirit upon you. You need new wineskins for God's Spirit. New wineskins for new wine. Pure and simple, the emphasis is on the new. In Matthew that we just read, if you put new wine in new wineskins, then both are preserved. The old and the new. Both are preserved. Remember, Matthew is writing to a Jewish community. And He didn't want to be saying to the Jewish community, the old is worthless, the old is no good. Both can be preserved. Jesus would say, I have not come to destroy the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. Jesus would say, there are 600 plus laws that you're supposed to follow to find life. But I'm telling you the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with your heart and soul and mind and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, He says, depend all the laws and all the prophets. In other words, all the laws and all the prophets are supposed to teach us how to love God and how to love our neighbor. That's the purpose of the laws. And so Jesus is not trying to do away with the laws. Just help us remember and understand the purpose of the laws, that we are the ones who need to know God's Spirit and be pliable enough to be led into some new future. Because that is where you find joy. That's what I want us to think about this morning and I just want to say to you three things. First of all, I believe we are called to honor our past and to give thanks for the old to honor our past. Jesus definitely believed in the past, His heritage as a good Jew. You honor it, you love it, though He is bringing something new. We live in a culture right now where we are always interested in the next and the new. Everything changes so fast. There's no doubt we live in a time right now where the rate of change is faster than ever before and it can be disconcerting and sometimes we forget to connect with our heritage, to connect with our past, to remember and to give thanks. This past summer I have been telling you how there were 74 of us from St. Luke's who traveled to Italy on a spiritual pilgrimage from Rome to Oberammergau, Germany to see the Passion Play. And it turned out that Marsh and I went a few days early. We wanted to get over jet lag and do a little resting before the group arrived and we would be ready to lead. And one of the places that we went to early was to Venice. Now Venice was going to be where the entire group would come and we would all gather there. But we wanted a few extra days there just to rest. And if you go to Venice, then one of the things you have to do is you have to take a gondola ride. I mean, that's obligatory. You cannot go and not take a gondola ride. And so when the group came, we were all out there taking gondola rides, and we just had a grand time all going through the canals of Venice. However, when Marsh and I went early, we went ahead and took a gondola ride then. We, we didn't mind taking two or three, or however many we could get in. We knew what a romantic an opportunity and time it was going to be. And so when we got there, before everyone else, we took a gondola ride. And I started learning so much about gondoliers. I learned, first of all, that gondolas got created about 1094, a thousand years ago. They're 36 feet long, flat bottom. There are no engines. They go by pushing an oar, pushing off the buildings. A thousand years. At one time, there was maybe 10,000 gondolas there. The gondolas have... Been means of transportation and moving goods. Now you got all the electric things and and gas powered, and so you have very few gondolas there now. But you then, maybe as many as 10,000. So, anyway, so they have these gondoliers, and you have to be a licensed gondolier to ride, to take care of a gondola. Today there are 433 licensed gondoliers there in Venice, and they're all men. Except, in 2010, there was one woman who finally got licensed to be a gondolier. Today, they're actually up to five. That's progress. Five out of the 433 gondoliers are now women. They're all supposed to be dressed in certain ways. There's tests you have to pass. And as we got on our gondolier, what we began to learn was you had to be born in Venice to get a license to be a gondolier. And usually it was someone who had a father who was a gondolier and passed it on down. And that was our gondolier. He was so very proud of his heritage. His grandfather had been a gondolier. His father had been a gondolier. And now he was a gondolier. And the really cool thing was the boat we were in had been his father's boat. It was more than 40 years old. They continued to take care of it and upgrade it. And then what was really neat, he said, if you notice the bulkhead in the front of the gondolier, he said, it's a carving of three children. That's me and my brother and my sister. My father had it carved back when we were children so he could put it here in his boat so that when he was out and he was doing the business, he would always be seeing his family. And he felt so proud of this history of tying him to his father, to his grandfather, to gondoliers for 1,000 years. And as he brought us around to all the corners, he'd be saying, Now this building was 200 years old, and this one's 500, and this one's, I mean, it was unbelievable. There was such an appreciation of past and a connection to their heritage. And this guy was a man of great joy. When you remember your heritage you're able to look back and see all the points that you can connect and you begin to see how God has worked in your life. If you honor your past, you honor your heritage, you will see how God has been working in your life to where you have come to this moment. This past week I was at a meeting at the Oklahoma United Methodist Foundation and it was the board of directors meeting and And while I was there, I was able to see my friend and my mentor, Muzon Biggs. Dr. Biggs was the senior pastor at Boston Avenue Methodist Church for more than 30 years. He retired about 10 years ago now. We have known one another for 55 years. I was 13 years old there at First Methodist Church in Houston. Marsh and I were in the youth group. And in the evening time after youth, we would come into church and you had a Sunday evening worship service and he was the Sunday evening preacher. And so we became friends so long ago and he just sort of took me under his wing. When I was in seminary, you have to go do a year's internship, a residency somewhere. By then, he was the pastor at Trinity Methodist Church in Beaumont, Texas. And so I went to Trinity in Beaumont and I did my residency for a year with him there. But he taught me so much about how to preach. He taught me about the importance of a story, how to tell a story. He taught me how important it is to tell them two things, three things, four things. That's <laughs> where I got it. But he told me how to be able to do that. And, and then after I'd been there for just a couple of months and he'd been watching me preach, he said, you know, Bob, I, I think you ought to preach without notes. I'd been preaching for about... Four years then, and I had always used notes. Some people preach by a manuscript, some by notes, some without any notes. Not one is better than the other. All three can be done effectively. But he said, I think you're the one who needs to preach without notes. And I said, what if, what if I get up there and we forget? What happens then? He said, we all go home early. <laughs> okay, okay. If that's the worst that can happen, I guess I can try this. So I started trying. I'll never forget there in and Beaumont. First time getting up to come into the pulpit and not have any notes. I'd always had notes. And now just to to preach. He had such an impact on my life and how to be a pastor. When he retired, I was at his retirement dinner to say thank you and to talk about the old times. But you know, now he's retired. He's in Tulsa. I'm working here in Oklahoma City. I never go to Tulsa he never comes to Oklahoma City and we had the pandemic and it's been years since I've seen him and I saw him and I thought about my past and my heritage and and I said I want to set a date and I will drive to Tulsa and I want us to go to lunch I want to take you out to lunch just to be able to remember and to give thanks I guarantee it's going to bring me joy. I hope you will think of someone who has blessed you and is a part of your heritage and you want to take the time to give thanks to be with them, to remember. Secondly, make your days count by walking with Christ. There's something important about walking with Christ and by that I mean you and I come to church on Sundays and we feel close to Christ, we come to worship together, but what happens on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday when the world starts closing in and you're bombarded with all this negativism again and all the struggles to make that commitment that every day we're going to seek to be like Christ. We seek to walk with Christ. To let that be in our lives, because if we do that, you will find joy. Yeah, you know, I was reading about a man named George who, back in the 1700s, he um, had dropped out of school when he was 15. His family owned a tavern in Gloucester, and he went to work there to try to help make ends meet. But the fun thing was, he attracted so many patrons because he he knew how to imitate other people, voice, actions, motions, and And people really got into him coming and he'd be saying funny things that probably these people wouldn't say and doing things. And so the person he loved to imitate the most was Reverend Cole, the minister there in the town. And so he could really do Reverend Cole. He had down all the movements and the voice and the the inflections. And so he would say things that would be embarrassing to Reverend Cole, embarrassing to the church. But all the patrons loved it and so it would bring in more business But because George really wanted to be good, he decided that he would start going to church to watch Reverend Cole and see if he really could get down the motions, the inflections, the things he would say. And so he started going to church to listen so he could imitate him even better. And a strange thing happened. He started hearing the stories of Jesus and he wanted to know more. So instead of going to church to try to imitate Reverend Cole he was now going to learn about the gospel and it had a, such an impact on his life he felt he was hearing god say go back to school that was going to be terribly difficult because they were so poor but he decided to try and he went and applied and got accepted to oxford and he started going to school at oxford and while he was there george whitfield came to know john wesley and charles wesley and they invited him to be a part of a holy club, an experience to become disciplined in your life and how to walk with Christ, how to deepen your faith. And when George Whitfield graduated, he felt called to start open-air preaching, to going to Bristol where people came out of the coal mines and preached to him there because they were never going to come to church. He went to them, and as he began preaching, these huge crowds began to listen. I told you he's such an effective speaker and so he was and then he felt God was calling him to do something else and so he called John Wesley and said why don't you come out here and take over for me and so John Wesley went out to Bristol and he began open air preaching and then he began organizing them into small classes and it literally is the beginning of the Methodist Church. And then George Whitefield felt called by God to go to America. And he began going up and down the eastern seaboard and there he was preaching and having revivals and go look it up on your Google and you'll find out the Great Awakening was by George Whitfield there in the 1700s here in America, a religious revival. He was a man who tried so hard to walk with Christ and he found incredible joy. God will speak to you, I am convinced God will speak to you if you are trying to walk with Him every day. You'll find joy. And so third, if you can honor your past and live in the moment and walk with Christ, then God will show you an exciting future. He will lead you into a future that is going to be exciting. He will show it to you. You and I do not have to be trapped by the past nor afraid of the future. That's the whole idea. There is a new wine. And if we are new wineskins, then we have to be pliable and we will change and we will grow. As that new wine ferments in our spirit, we will be led in a whole new way into where we are going. And you'll find joy. It doesn't matter whether you're in your 20s or your 90s. We will find joy if we're willing to take in new wine. While we were on our trip over to Italy, we went also to Milan. And I told you last week about how one of the highlights, I wanted to go see Da Vinci's painting, The Last Supper. And because someone else messed up with the tickets, we didn't get to see it. And we did go see the Duomo which is the incredible cathedral in Milan took 600 years to build but there was one other historical high point of interest we wanted to go see and that was a Starbucks Reserve Roastery. A Starbucks Reserve Roastery there is only six in the world. There's one in Seattle, one in Chicago, one in New York, one in um, Tokyo and one in Shanghai and one in Milan. I didn't know there was one in Milan. I didn't know there was such a thing as a reserve roastery. It's where they bring in the finest of all coffee beans in the world and they roast them there. And there's six places where they do this and make it an incredible experience. And I found out one was in Milan. I love coffee. And so we had to go do that. It was going to be a highlight there in the trip. And we went there and it was fascinating. It's kind of the Willy Wonka of coffee I mean it's it's got all the bells and whistles and hoses and all kinds of wheels and gadgets and you see beans traveling through the ceiling and down and and then they go to a roaster, and you see them getting roasted and, and then they zip back up and go somewhere else. It's unbelievable. And so we're watching all this happen and then you can go to a bar, a counter and you can taste the beans. I didn't realize you could eat coffee beans before they're cooked. You give you a coffee bean, you eat the coffee bean, you get a taste of the coffee. You can buy a flight of coffee and taste three or four different kinds. Then they have the beans for sale. They're usually about $25 for a half a pound. They're really nice beans. Um, (laughs) We brought several home with us and they they really were special. and We we had such a good time uh, having some coffee. There's Lots of food, places to go sit down and eat. You have your little uh, dimitas cups and you have your cappuccinos and your espressos and a little food. It truly was an experience. And it made me think about Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks, and how this all came about. How Howard Schultz was gotten hired by Starbucks. It had gotten started back in 1971. And it really sold coffee machines and beans, not drinks. But they hired him in 1982 and he had to come to Italy for some of these coffee machines and he began to see what was happening around this country. Lots of people went to small coffee places and there they would have their espresso, they would have their little demitas cup. It was the kind of thing that it wasn't go get a big cup of coffee and get on your way. They came in and sat down and they drank it and they talked with other people. It, It was an experience. They had a Strange name for the people working back there, baristas. No, he began watching what was going on and came home and said, this is what we need to do, guys, and they weren't interested. So he went out on his own He started his own company, very successful, made a bunch of money, came back and bought Starbucks, the original part, and then he began the expansion. And over the next 20 years, he opened 7,000 stores across the United States and thousands around the world. He literally changed our vocabulary and the way so many people looked at drinking coffee. In 2000, he decided to retire. And when he did, not long after that, the stock price began to slide, the quality began to slide, the excitement began to slide, and Starbucks was in trouble. They weren't sure the company would make it. And Howard Schultz had a tough decision to make. You know, whenever you have a founder who has a vision to make something exciting happen, and then things get into trouble and they try to come back and be the CEO and rally the company, quite often it doesn't go well. And he had to decide, am I going to try to come back and reinvigorate Starbucks? And he decided to do so. It was on December the 7th, 2008, he was going to make the announcement, I'm coming back. And I'll tell you in advance, he did it. He rallied the company. But he didn't know that then on that morning of 2008. That morning he got up early and he went to the original store, Pike Place. Went to the store. He still had his own key. He went inside. No one was there. No baristas. No cappuccino machines running. No espressos. He was there by himself. And he came in and stood behind the counter... And I want to read you what he had to say. I stood there in the dark and made two commitments to myself. One, I would not return to the role of CEO dwelling on our store history. I understood that I had to return to our roots. But if that heritage was not linked to a willingness to reinvent and invigorate, then we would fail. Second, I would not cast blame for the mistakes of the past that would be unproductive. The number one priority in the weeks and months to come was to instill confidence in our future. When I read that, I stopped and I put the book down and thought about it. What is so important is to remember our roots, to remember our heritage, but not to be stiff and unpliable But to be willing to be flexible and to reinvigorate, to be filled with God's Spirit in this moment in time to walk with Christ so that we can be called into a bright new future with confidence. That was the promise of new wine and new wineskins. You can connect to your heritage and give thanks. You can trust this moment in walking in God's presence and you can have confidence into the future. And that is how we will find joy. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.